This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So the topic of the talk today is on the relationship between uh, growing up and waking up. It's been a kind of theme that's been very popular among Dharma teachers now for quite a few years. <clears throat> and it's a very important topic. And I, I won't be able to do it justice in just one talk. And maybe we can also um, get some uh, different ideas from our discussion as well when I finish talking. Um, but I'm going to start with a poem. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all of it. It's too long. I'm going to read the first five verses. And some of you will probably know it. It's, um, it's called Intimations of Immortality from uh, Recollections of Early Childhood by William Wordsworth, who lived in the Lake District. I don't know if anybody's ever toured the, the Lake District. It's a very beautiful area of England. Um, I grew up in Manchester and uh, it, uh, didn't get to the Lake District very often. <coughs> so, um, I think Wordsworth was writing in the what, 19th century. I can't remember when he was born. No, uh, 1798, so 18th, well, 18th, 19th century. So it must have been very beautiful at that time as well. So it starts with this little uh, quote. Oh, no, I think he wrote this little uh, preface. <coughs> The child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety, natural reverence. reverence. Nature was, uh, Woodsworth was very reverential of nature, as are our Zen ancestors. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore. Turn wheresoever I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth, but yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Now while the birds doth sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound as to the tabas sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. 
I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep, and all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity, and with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. Yea, blessed creatures, I have heard the call, yea, to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its coronal. The fullness of your bliss I feel, I feel it all. O oh, evil day, if I were sullen, while earth herself is adorning, the sweet May morning, and the children are culling on every side, in a thousand valleys far and wide, fresh flowers, while the sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear, but there's a tree of many, one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come, from God who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy, shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. But he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So, is this a kind of uh, introduction to the relationship between growing up and waking up? Um, any responses or... Um, comments from that poem? How did it strike you or resonate with you? That they're opposing. Hmm? That growing up is like falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Perhaps the, um, uh, the step to that line where it says, as it be how I dare, how dare I be silent to the first will be from. Yeah. Which is somewhat like the young kids view of the world, which is not that kind of judgment and innocence and enjoying the world. So I, I think we are all um, aware of that connection between baby consciousness and child consciousness and uh, a sense of. Uh, seeing the, the glory of the world and um, the sense of the newness and, uh, and, and uh, I think we all have a sort of memory of that and uh, at times we can sometimes get back in touch with it um, 
So in the talk today, I'm going to just kind of cover, um, first of all, this uh, notion of um, you have to you know, you kind of have to be somebody before you can be a nobody. That's a Jack Angler said that many years ago. Um, the inevitable socialization, conditioning, identification we have to go through as children into our language and culture. Um, but how, how, how Zen and, and other wisdom traditions um, uh, have, over the centuries, uh, developed practices uh, and teachings that can actually help us get back in touch with that original glory. The Zen often refers to it as original mind or the original dwelling place, uh, the face you had before your parents were born. And um, you'll find this in other wisdom traditions as well. And when people have, you know, mystical experiences of one kind or another, they often report this kind of experience. Or sometimes when people take psychedelics, they have similar experiences. Um, and so I'm going to just mention a little bit about developmental psychology, uh, a little bit about developmental trauma, um, a little bit about the kind of existential givens and existential anxieties. And, uh, and then some of the stages we go through, and I'm going to simplify it, but, um, but basically how we start off maybe, uh, you know, trailing clouds of glory, we start off with this, this sort of almost non-separation with the world. Or there is an emergent self within the first couple of months, but when you look into the face of the baby, it's very present and it's very lovely to look into the face of a baby and see that sort of wide open consciousness or awareness and lack of a separate self at that point. And then we'll go into like, you know, how the separate self develops and particularly how trauma and identification contributes to that sense of separateness and the dualistic language that we internalize and identify with. And, um, and then um, I'll come back to the notion of um, um, Sometimes we focus a lot in our Zen practice on what we call the self-centered self, which is really, uh, um, it doesn't totally encompass the personal self. Uh, it's a kind of self which is defended. It's a, default, a self which has been hurt and which is, um, at its core, has a lot of anxiety and trauma and it, it tries to protect itself. So the notion of self-centered doesn't, not kind of like being selfish, it, it means just kind of like this sense in which we're separated and we're cut off because of the, the traumas we've been through or the anxieties we are experiencing. And that's, no child can kind of like avoid that developmental trauma. But there are more, there's not a level playing field. And so some children who are lucky, who have a reasonably good enough caregiving environment, and develop a sense of self which can be conducive of, well, of well-being as well. And um, there is a, uh, a very well-known uh, um, psychotherapist in Sydney called Russell Mears who's written extensively on uh, trauma and development. And, uh, and there's lots of fine writings on, on trauma and development that you'll find in the psychotherapy literature, but he's a homegrown, he's a Sydney person. And... Um, the sense in which um, he talks about, he specializes in borderline personality disorder and um, 
the sense in which if that caregiving environment is not conducive to play, to, to safety, uh, to a certain kind of conversation that the child develops inwardly, then the, 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 the sense of self that develops is a little bit impoverished and, uh, and hence is that, is that more defended self and can more, 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 more kind of vulnerable to experiencing an emptiness inside or a de depressive state inside. But if the child's been lucky enough to have responsive caregivers, you see at this stage when about three or four when the, the child is starting to talk and it plays with its objects, its toys, and has a little running narrative going with it as you're playing with your Lego or whatever you probably remember. And it's creating that imaginary world and that's the beginnings of the creating a very rich inner life. So the, the, the personal self is, is, is fragile and vulnerable and the sense in which we can experience intimacy, person-to-person -person intimacy is really dependent upon this developmental stage. And um, this stage can be uh, revisited later in life with other adults in terms of uh, creating a, a, a trusting relationship and a certain form of be a way of being with someone where we can learn to relax and enter into this, this inner life. Um, and so like um, when, when Buddhism or Zen talks about um, no self or um, it's, it, it's not so much that we don't have a self so much, but it, it's more about the difference between a self which is structured around avoidance and uh, um, um, control, uh, fear, uh, and, uh, and a self which is... Uh, where, where the, so but the self which is more open and, and can, capable of human intimacy. It's not something we want to reject, that's something we want to facilitate as well. And in a way, we could talk about a life-centered self. So we, in, in, in our practice principles, we talk about self-centered self, but you could con compare that to a life-centered self. So the self-centered self being uh, constricted and closed down, narrowed, defensive, and a life-centered self being more expansive and open and trusting. And, um, and in terms of what Zen and other traditions describe as the waking up process, um, you can see how it would be very difficult to go from a, a really cut-off, closed, self-centered self directly to an awake and open self. Um, um, although, um, and, and that, that can be problematic if that happens as well, it's much better to have a more integrated process where you go from more self-centered self to more open, life-centered self to more awake self. Um, and um, so um, one of the reasons why this topic of integrating growing up and waking up has become so uh, central in the Western teaching to the extent to which Ken Wilbur has talked about it being the fourth turning of the Dharma wheel. Uh, in other words, you had the traditional Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path being the first turning of the Dharma wheel. And you had the sort of emptiness teachings as being the second turning of the Dharma wheel. 
and consciousness only teachings being the third turning of the Dharma wheel. And then we have this notion that, that Wilbur talks about as, as Buddhism has migrated to the West, of this integration between the psychotherapy and the awakening practices to bring about a fourth turning of the Dharma wheel. And of course, in the West, we don't go and live in monasteries. Most of us stay in our homes and we practice here and now in this uh, ordinary life that we all participate in. Um, so uh, my teacher, Barry Majid, talks about a top-down and a bottom-up approach to Zen practice. And uh, by, by top-down, top he, he means like when, when Zen first came to the West in the 60s and 70s, the emphasis was a lot on pushing through for special experiences, which were known as enlightenment experiences. Uh, uh, we have a quite like a different understanding of that now. People can have these special experiences, but you don't necessarily identify that with enlightenment. But it's more like a release. It's a and some people experience that in a kind of joyful, blissful way, and others experience it in a more subtle, gentle way. Um, and, and you can imagine if, if, if you kind of like go into an intensive retreat period where you're sitting still rigorously for many hours at a time, for many days at a time, you know, you're inevitably going to have some kind of experience which is a little bit unusual. But maybe, uh, so the top-down emphasis in Zen often emphasized that. And um, it's often the case, I was talking to someone last week um, who um, got very much into Buddhism when he was very young and went off to Sri Lanka and stayed in the monastery for um, a year or two and um, had some pretty intense experiences but then um, almost had a psychotic breakdown mm. and uh, the sense in which um, if, 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 the, if the work hasn't been done at the growing up level, at the personal growth level, some of these breakthrough experiences or opening experiences can actually unleash a whole lot of trauma as well. So there's a danger in that kind of practice, a danger in the practice where people sort of, like for example, go off to a Vipassana retreat for 10 days and they've never, never done meditation before. It's a very dangerous practice. It's much better to do this in a more gradual way. And, uh, and, 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 and similarly, um, this top-down approach could be uh, seen as a means of what these days we talk about, um, emotional bypassing or spiritual bypassing, where you, um, you can go to the monastery and you can have um, some pretty special experiences and maybe even achieve great states of peace and tranquility, but there's a whole... Oh, or pockets of trauma that are just left uh, not touched and uh, at some point in your life they're going to come out and uh, so there's a sense in which that kind of top-down practice can bypass as well and, and, and finally another cri another criticism of that was that um, the, uh, the searching for peak experiences of that kind can also be very addictive um, um, yeah. It's uh, many of us, and I include myself in that, when we were younger, and even to a certain extent now, but not as, not as much now, but in, certainly in my younger days, uh, wanting to have that special experience and going in search of that and finding you know, the everyday life very boring and very uh, 
not feeling satisfied with it. So even in the classical literature with Hakuin, a 17th century Zen teacher who codified the Koan curriculum, you can read, he actually wrote a biography which is quite modern autobiography where he talks about a number of Satori or Kensho experiences he had, but then to be followed by like plunging into depression again. He had a pretty uh, interesting childhood where he was frightened to death by visions of hell, in Buddhist hell. And, uh, and he went through numerous experiences, but still struggled. And, um, and so, you know, there can be a sense in which we, we have a wonderful uh, experience which lasts for some, some duration of time and then we want to repeat that again. And uh, so we're again, we're back into that seeking mode. So the, uh, then again, I mean, the positive, I mean, it's not all negative. I mean, whether we're using psychedelics or whether we're having a, a special experience on a meditation retreat, it can, the, these insights can open up uh, some very useful, uh, we can learn from them and it can help us to, you know, change a course of direction of our lives or it can help us, uh, you know, uh, be able to be with our own death in a much more uh, accepting way. Um, and in fact, you know, research into psychedelics is coming back into, into vogue again after it was um, repressed for a long time. And uh, even in Australia, there's a little research centre experimenting with psychedelics and depression and psychedelics and terminal illness. And uh, there has been other experiments with ecstasy and PTSD and that kind of thing. So there are, whether it's an experience which comes from, or whether it's just an experience which happens totally spontaneously. People have these, these mystical experiences without ever going into a Zen center. And uh, sometimes it can be quite, again, it's not necessarily uh, something which is uh, beneficial. And uh, so it does help to have some kind of... Uh, education around these things so you know what you're experiencing. In the same way, if you were going on a mushroom trip or a LSD trip or a um, ayahuasca, you know, visionary quest, that it's good to have someone there mentoring you through that process. Um, so the bottom-up practice, which Barry talks about, basically is situated in our Soto Zen tradition. So uh, the, it's, it's, this is very oversimplified, but in, in the Rinzai Zen, the, the emphasis was often on, through koan practice, having that initial breakthrough into uh, that oneness experience or the non-separation or everything falling away happened. And uh, where well, the Soto uh, tradition has always been this notion of original enlightenment right from the get-go and the sense in which, which is very similar in the Dzogchen tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. So the, the sense in which um, this, what I've been calling today the original dwelling place, the sense it's always been here. It's just that what, what, what are the barriers which, which, which get in the way of us seeing that. And uh, so in, a, in the bottom-up practice we, we, we sit uh, without any striving for any special experience. And what happens when you do that is that the main experience is you just start to see the resistance which comes up against just sitting. It's the resistance against this can't be, we, you know, we have this, this can't be it, you know. Because the, 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 we're so conditioned to 
the seeking and searching and that's something which is going to happen in the future that there's a lot of resistance which comes up to just sitting. Um, and, and, and a lot of people are realising today that the, the fundamental duality and separation which causes the most suffering in our lives is not so much separation um, or duality from, from nature or from the world. In fact, many of us can have... Um, it doesn't have to be a big special experience to stop and appreciate a flower or a mountain or the moon or the sky. We can all do that. We can all have a sense of the separation dropping away a little bit when we're in those moments. It's not, you know, it's nothing special in that sense. Um, but the, the separation that tends to create m the most suffering is the separation within, within ourselves. It's the, it's the way in which our consciousness is divided and segmented and fragmented and split off within ourselves that often creates the barriers for us uh, appreciating life as it is. Hence, that's the connection again with the, uh, the growing up, um, with the, uh, the, the, the place for psychotherapy in this process, uh, the way in which the, the Zen practice, the bottom-up Zen practice of just sitting and the psychotherapy practice kind of dovetail into each other, so they complement each other. So the notion that's always been in my teacher's teaching that you know, Zen needs psychotherapy and psychotherapy needs Zen, so in the sense in which you bring them together. And that would vary. There's lots of really good therapies out there. It's not just psychoanalysis. There's lots of great um, alternative contemporary therapies and there are lots of other great practices other than Zen where you can bring this integration together. So, um, just coming back to developmental psychology, you know, this, there's a, so this, this certain notion of when the baby is born there's a lack of separation, and when you gaze into the baby's eyes, you can, you can sense that. Even at a, at a later stage, when how old are babies when they sort of sit cross-legged with their back up, like, in a, like a little Buddha? Is it three months or six months when they do that? I can't remember. It's sitting about six, isn't it? Sitting about six months. So, so, you know, when my son Joshua was about six months old, and he was, even when at that age, um, you know, as long as they're, they're, they're not hungry and they're not cold or they're basically in a nice place, then there's that real sense of presence, being in the moment and just sitting there and uh, you can sense that. And, and uh, of, of course, um, that process doesn't last because uh, there's a, the inevitable separation that has to happen. We have to identify, you know, this is my belly that's hungry or this is my hand which is hitting myself, and, and so on. And, uh, and we have to be conditioned and, and uh, into language use. And, um, and so language itself is, is very interesting because you know, that language, especially English, I'm not a great uh, linguist, but uh, basically you know, English grammar and other grammars have the notion of a subject and an object. So, uh, I am hearing the bird, so the sense of the I being the subject and the verb being the hearing and the object being the bird or the bird's sound. Uh, you know, it's creating this sense of the subject in here and the objects out there. And so we start to experience ourselves as being a subject in here and there are other people out there and there are other objects out there. And of course, that in some cultures, like our culture, 
our technological culture uh, can lead to the domination of nature because it's all an object and we're the subject and it's there for us to manipulate. Um, so that sense of duality starts to creep in and, um, uh, and that also, of course, uh, is um, uh, unfortunately uh, the child will inevitably also come across at times being uh, maybe uh, even disciplined in a, in, a, in a kind of healthy way or, or, or discipline which is not healthy. Uh, uh, so the notion of you know, the various little t traumas that can happen for the child where the child then starts to identify and you know, Tommy, you shouldn't have done that and you're pointing at Tommy really sternly and, and this, Tommy's got to be in here somewhere, so he's identifying somehow and, and develops um, this identification with an eye and multiple eyes that we start to identify with. Uh, and some of those eyes are, uh, have a lot of maybe shame as part of them or hurt. And so that's the process of self-division where we start to split off and cut off from that. And... Uh, and of course, if our caregivers are angry with us for some reason or whatever, or we start to, we tend to find the, the negative in ourselves. So the whole narrative start to develop. And, uh, and, and before we know it, we have this self-centered self-developing, which is structured around our core, vulnerable parts of the self and more strategies to control and avoid and protect ourselves. The strategy might be pleasing others or whatever the strategy might be that we take up to get through. And, uh, you know, even in the most uh, loving environment, this can still happen. And, uh, and, 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 of course, when we get to a certain age in childhood, even, even around about, I can't remember how old I was, at seven or eight, when I started to experience this, in like, more like an existential anxiety about you know, that's all, where does all this come from? What happens when you die? Um, such that I was actually, I uh, used to have this anxiety at night time and start to worry about not my breath stopping. And, uh, and this is a true story. I was walking along the street one day and I found a crucifix and I put the crucifix under my pillow. And that kind of symbol seemed, seemed to help a lot. Um, so, speaking of crucifix, that cross is a very interesting symbol too, in terms of this what the topic we're talking about, because the, the horizontal line is kind of like the developmental line, and uh, where the personal growth or the, the growing up along the horizontal line, and the vertical line is kind of like more of that transpersonal spiritual dimension, which is the eternal now, which is always here in this like that word, intersects. In some ways, Zen. Zazen, practice of meditation, is, is that intersection between personal self and, and the universal self at that point. And it's kind of like we're wanting to let go of the personal self and, and settle into the universal self. And, um, and that's a kind of integration. But coming back to the personal self, though, even though we do identify with the I, there are, you know, depending on, there are different there's kind of like two forms of language. One's a very kind of logical, rational kind of language, which is very suitable to subject, object, and scientific discourse and fixing things. But there's another kind of language which is more analogical, more metaphorical, 
which we can also internalize as a child. And this is the gift. This is a gift to us from if we've been able to develop a narrative which is uh, which is playful and engaging and imaginative. Because you know, I remember the world of imagination as a child and entering into that imagination and. Uh, and that world of the imagination and the, the use of metaphor and uh, enables us then to appreciate the arts, to appreciate poetry, which creates a sense of intimacy. So it's not all bad news in terms of the personal self. We can, we, we also have these. So in some ways, for most of us, it's more of a flip-flopping um, from being more life-centered and open and alive to flopping back, something might happen, we might get triggered and we flop back a little bit into the self-centered self. But then we flop back into the open self again. Um, for people who have been more traumatized, the, the, it's, more, it's a more, more, maybe a tendency to stay in the, in the self-centered self until they start to open up gradually, also meet people who can help that process or some other practice. So, it's, it's not all bad news in terms of the personal self. And I always see the personal self in terms of that intimacy between the two of us or the, or the group of us. It's being just the same kind of beauty as the, you know, nature, the plum blossoms falling from the trees, the, you know, the beauty of the clouds at sunset. And the, 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 even though the personal self, in a way, is a mirage, it is an illusion, but it's a beautiful illusion, and we experience that illusion, so it's real for us in that way. Um, so in some sense, the, 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 what we call the self, in other words, the kind of good self, the well-being self, the open self, is also an effect of language, it's an effect of narrative, it's, an, it's a feeling, it's a feeling which comes from that. It's like sharing a memory together, we went, we went walking in France a couple of years together and then we're sitting down over a glass of wine or orange juice and we're talking about that. And, and there's a, um, a connection and um, there's a flow to that kind of reverie and, 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 and that leads very nicely into, into meditation practice and Zazen practice. Just that in the meditation practice we might be having, you know, sometimes I have that sense of feeling state which comes up of that eternal summer holiday when I was a boy and there was no more school and was, you know, the day was long and things were still relatively new and, and uh, that can come up and, and in the same way but in our meditation practice we're also opening to the world as well, we're also opening to the sounds and the sensations and, um, and there's a, it, it just flows together that stream of consciousness and uh, so there can be a nice dovetail, it's like a, like a, not a dramatic thing but a, a dovetailing from the open personal self to the, the awakened self and the self in which is sort of dropping away from separation and uh, re-experiencing that sense of the original dwelling place. So the, you know, the metaphors of opening, expanding, releasing, these are all metaphors which bring the Zen and psychotherapy together. Where we, releasing and opening from uh, traumatic memories which have been stored and we, we release them and we open up and, and, uh, and we come back to a more playful, joyful engagement with the world. So that's the integration process. The, if, in, in psychotherapy, if someone's really closed off and disconnected, you're wanting to try and integrate that into a more open personal self. 
And then from the personal open self, you wanted to integrate it into the universal self, the uh, non-separation from the world and the universe. And uh, but also we still come back to the notion of these existential limits. Like, you know, this, uh, traditional Buddhism talked about you know the three. You, know, you all remember the big three: sickness, old age, and death. So it's kind of like um, there's still the sense in which even though we awaken to and realize the universal self or life itself, that we're not separate from life, at the same time, we're also this human being. And to be a human being, it's only possible to be a human being within these limits, and the limits of sickness, old age, and death. And, and the, uh, the Zen path also includes confronting and being with the anxiety that arises from those confrontations with sickness, disability, and uh, old age and death. And, um, and our ability to face them uh, and be with that is part of that growing up process, which then does tails into the awakening process. So I think we've got to be really careful that we don't use, um, again, bypass the, the issue of death. I mean, maybe Maybe I will be reincarnated in a different body in the future. Um, but it's, it's, it's not something which is that real or tangible to me. It's not been in my culture. If I've been raised as a Tibetan, it might be real and tangible to me. But um, um, it, it, in a way, may well be the case. I mean, there's so many things we don't know about in this universe. Um, but for me, death is a reality. I'm going to die at some point. And, uh, I don't want to avoid that or kind of like uh, avoid that by thinking I'm going to go to heaven or thinking I'm going to be reincarnated. It's something which I face. It's a, this particular being, this human being that I am, is going to come to an end. And, uh, and that's something which dovetails into our Zen practice as well. Um, so, and other limits, like limits of the aging body um, at some point. Um, I might not be able, like um, I was just saying to who was it this morning, it might have been Gareth, uh, talking about Billy Connolly, talking about his Parkinson's disease and how he's losing his memory and his banjo playing is not the same as it used to be and, and so on. And it's going to happen to all of us eventually at some point, unless we die in our sleep you know, tomorrow and we're still fine. But there is that sense of the disintegration and fading away uh, that can happen. Um, you know, let hope we don't get dementia, but like, um, and then it's possible, I think, to have a really good, it's important to think of, you know, having a good life, a good old age, and hopefully that can last till the end, but sometimes if we, if we, if we keep on living, it's going to get more and more difficult, and, and then we're coming to terms with our dependency at that point in time too, so how our, how our practice can help us from a growing up point of view, that includes all the stages of life. And uh, can this practice help us with old age? I think it can, but I'll, I'll leave my talk there and open.